0: All right. Lake. All right, well, it's good to be with you. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. I'd love to encourage you to grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see we're continuing a series called Heaven. Last week, uh, I told you, I just, I was writing and prepping and praying, and I wrote a message that was like two, three times too long. I just cut it in half. And so last week, the title of the message was, It's Really Good. Today, the title is, It's Really, Really Good. And uh, so we just keep going. We want to see what it is that the Bible says, uh, how God has revealed to us what our eternal home is going to be like. And we talked about how God plans to redeem everything. He wants to save us and to resurrect us, but his plan is so big that it includes the entire universe as well, to remove the stain of the curse and the taint of sin from everything. And we talked about how last week there's going to be no disease. We'll have glorified bodies, glorified beauty. The Bible says that all things will be made new. It doesn't say that God will make all new things. And so we recognize that the Bible talks about not of creation uh, in the new day, but, but of re-creation. And theologian uh, Dallas Willard says, The life we now have as the persons we now are will continue in the universe in which we now exist. But again, we recognize that it will all be resurrected, redeemed, reclaimed, restored, all these rewords. In fact, I encourage you to write down a word last week. I'd love to have you write down this word in the margins this week. It's simply the word "upgrade." Because we know what upgrade means. Just write down the word upgrade. We get it. We know God will upgrade everything. He'll upgrade us. Uh, upgrade. We understand upgrade is like moving from skiing to snowboarding. Right? That's an upgrade. Okay? It's like moving from PC to Mac. Right? That's just, that's an upgrade. Yep. It's like moving from a Ferrari to a Saturn family wagon, right? That's uh, not exactly. Okay. No, but we get that everything in the universe will be upgraded without hindrance. All things will glorify our glorious God to whom all glory is deserved and, and there are some additional aspects of our eternal home. What I'd love to do is spend time in that topic today. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up talking about how God will reward those who are faithful in this life and what reigning with him looks like. So that's next week. I'd love to encourage you to come back, bring a friend. We'll finish the series there. But if you're filling in the blanks, understand that an additional aspect of our eternal home is that it will be abundantly fruitful. Abundantly fruitful. In other words, there'll be no scarcity there. We will eat, we will drink, there will be abundance without scarcity. And and I know that some of you, I know Overlake sends trips out all year long. Last year, 30 plus trips went out to do mission and to do service and evangelism. And some of the places that you went were places where um, malnutrition, where drought, where famine stalks the land. And you might have been in a refugee camp or seen pictures of refugee camps where infants and children are, they're emaciated. And, and they're pained, they ex, they're very existence threatened because either uh, an oppressive regime is dictating that they don't have stability and, and, and things to eat or, or clean water to drink. Or it's just the barrenness of a fallen world preventing those things, but you understand what a horror it is to have such scarcity in this life. And friends, Jesus Christ is going to wipe that horror away forever. In Revelation 22, verse one and two, we read, then the angel showed me a river with the water of life "...clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations." So from this passage alone, we see the concept of abundance, the concept of monthly harvest of fresh water, the source of which is God himself, that the restored and resurrected reality will be abundantly fruitful. Now, there's an additional implication of this as well, and that is that we will we will eat and drink in our eternal home. And some of you have never thought about it before, but the idea is we will eat and drink, uh, in, in heaven. Foodies! You've got great things to look forward to, okay? And, and we see that in Revelation, it, a great wedding feast is portrayed. Jesus himself speaks of a great banquet to come. Jesus, when he's resurrected, shares a meal with his disciples. I put this passage, uh, in your notes, Luke 24. It says, still they stood there. This is the disciples. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. So here's Jesus in his resurrected state, his resurrected body. And he shares a meal with his disciples. And then in Revelation 19, and the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, So we know there'll be this wedding feast, the great culmination of history in this wedding feast when Jesus is united with his bride, the church, and there will be this entire banquet celebration. And so we will eat and drink, we'll enjoy the taste of food, uh, we'll enjoy the fellowship that a meal provides, but maybe... Maybe we won't have to eat to nourish our bodies. Maybe our bodies will have additional ways to be fueled and filled, sort of like photosynthesis with plants. Or maybe when we do eat, our bodies will perfectively uh, uh perfectly rather um utilize all of the calories and and utilize all of it for energy and sustenance so that there'll be no waste or maybe god in his winsome glory will make crispy Kreme crispy cream donuts uh tummy flattening kinds of foods right and again i say all of this with a big maybe because all of this is from the book of second opinions uh mike howerton style right like like the bible's just a little fuzzy on some of these things for example, it's fuzzy on a question I got this week. Pastor Mike, will there be steaks in heaven? Because it just doesn't seem like heaven if there's not big juicy steaks. And I, I understand that. And God understands that. He knows how good steak tastes. And, and so, you know, again, under the umbrella of grace, I would just suggest to you, yes, there will be steaks in heaven. But they'll grow on trees. Okay? Okay. <laughs> be a huge New York steak tree right next to a huge A1 steak sauce tree. And you just got it all right there. Uh, again, I don't know. Uh, umbrella of grace. What I do know is that the entire natural order is going to be changed and rearranged. And so if you're filling in the blanks, the next one is there will be redeemed nature. All of nature, the food chain that exists in this world, it will be reshuffled and perfected. And the implications of this are huge. Now, just think about nature for a moment. Capital N, nature. Do you know that even now in a fallen world, most people say they feel closer to God in nature. So many people, their first experience with the reality of God, that the majesty of God and the beauty of God, it happens out in nature in the desert under a a sky that's filled with stars, or it happens up on a mountain somewhere. For me, I'm wired this way. I just get fed and fueled by nature. I love getting out in the ocean, surfing a wave or climbing a ridge or hitting a, a wide open country road, exploring on my bike and just enjoying the common grace and beauty of God poured out even on this fallen world. Last week I had the privilege of being up on a mountaintop in Montana, looking out, and it was snow covered, and looking out over a valley that was just pristine and beautiful, river frozen through it, and uh, you know, other mountains, and, and I, it was just glorious, and I just enjoyed that moment, I worshiped God in that moment, and then I thought, even in this moment, with as beautiful as nature is, it's still it is still tainted with the curse of sin from top to bottom. And imagine how much better it's going to be when it is all restored, when it's all reclaimed and resurrected for the glory of God. And and some of you are like, what are you talking about, Mike? Nature's perfect. Nature's exactly how it should be. And just humbly, I would say to you, "No, no, it's not. Now, the curse of sin has tainted everything from the smallest mosquito that carries a horrific disease of malaria and sucks blood to the law of the uh, the fang and the claw that dominates the natural order today. I love Discovery Channel. And I, I love watching these nature, uh, you know, shows and man versus wild, the whole bit. And so uh, last week I'm watching a National Geographic special narrated by Alec Baldwin. Did a great job. And we're watching, I'm watching this thing and, and they, they focused in on a water buffalo that had been chased by a pack of hyenas into a, a muddy swamp where the buffalo got stuck. And so this pack of hyenas came around the, the rear of the buffalo, began to consume it while it was still alive. And they kept focusing on the face of this buffalo as, as just chunks of its body were being torn off. And, and the buffalo, it just, it was silent. It wasn't making any noise. It was silent. It, it, it laid its head down in the mud. You could tell what it was thinking. I hate hyenas, right? But in that scene, you could just tell that it's not as it should be. That that something is wrong with this picture. That There's like a groaning in the natural order. And of course, that's what the Bible says. In Romans chapter eight, we read, but with eager hope, The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so we see that God has a plan for nature. There'll be a redeemed and restored natural order that all of the beauty and majesty of creation that we currently know and love and are amazed by, that will be present, even in a more pristine and glorious context. But nature, the order of nature, will be restored, reclaimed, and glorified as well. Bible talks about how the lion will lie down with the lamb. Now, you could argue the lion could lie down with the lamb even today, But the lamb wouldn't get any sleep, right? So that's that's not going to happen. But God says it will happen. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. So it's a picture of God recreating the natural order in in a glorious, harmonious fashion. And one of the implications is that in our eternal home, there will be no multiplication, no no birth rate, no population overload. Uh, At least there will be no multiplication like we understand it today. And the reason why I can say this is because Jesus answers the question. He says that in heaven, we will be like the angels, that we're not gonna be husbands and wives, that we're not gonna be moms and dads, we're not, we're not gonna have babies like we have here on earth, and, and the implication is that, that it will somehow be different. I don't know what that'll be like, it'll, but it'll just be different. We'll love each other, we'll dwell together, the relationships, even the spousal relationships that are built on love, I mean, we'll enjoy one another, uh, we'll explore together, together, serve together, potentially dwell together. But Jesus just says, but the, but the whole multiplication thing, the whole population thing, that's going to be different. And some of you who are biologists, suddenly you go, oh, I get it. Now, now I understand how the lion could lie down with the lamb, because if it's just the same kind of multiplication rate as it's here on earth, then you know, uh, it's going to be sort of a food chain, right? I mean, because the mosquitoes would go crazy unless the frogs were there to eat them. And uh, the frogs would go crazy unless their predators were there to eat them. And so that doesn't make sense unless we project ourselves into a perfected and harmoniously balanced new order that God himself stewards. And that will be the redeemed nature, perfectly harmonious and balanced. All nature, all geography, all astronomy, all biology will attest to the amazing and awesome God who thought it all up in the first place. And so we see this redeemed nature. We also see a glorified sense of time. Glorified time. And we recognize that time itself is a creation of God. It's given to us as a dimension with which to make sense of our existence. Now, God exists outside of time. God exists in an instantaneous now. He sees eternity past and eternity future simultaneously. But we are given his creation called time. And, and yet we see that because it's a part of creation, it's been tainted with the curse of sin as well. But it will be perfected, it will be renewed, just like the rest of the universe. And so I just want to ask you to imagine, could you imagine the richness of time without the wistfulness of mortality... Without the bittersweet nostalgia of days gone by, never to be reclaimed. Can you imagine no sense of childhood lost? No sense of innocence lost? No sense of you can't go home again? No sting of time? No hurrying or rushing around? But also no boredom? No sense of needing to kill time or waste time? Friends, no mid-eternity crisis where you rush out and buy a convertible, okay? Okay? Uh, This is an amazing gift. Time with the curse gone means each moment given to us to enjoy to the full. Each moment enjoyed and utilized for God's glory. We will serve him and will worship him with the wealth of our moments. The book of Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 refers to the passing of time in the throne room of God. So we understand that time will pass, but it will be glorified and perfected as well. I also want to talk about the aspect of untainted friendship that will exist in eternity. Untainted friendship that we'll have. Again, it's an element of time being glorified. But what this means is that there'll be no drifting apart. It means that when you see a, a dear friend, even if you haven't seen that person for 10,000 years, you meet again celebrating holy camaraderie. This idea of untainted friendship means joyful intimacy. It means no betrayals. It means uh, nothing hidden because you don't have anything to hide. Here's, here, here's an idea about untainted friendship. What about, will there be strangers in heaven? I'll read you a passage of scripture. This is, uh, from the gospels, Matthew 17, 2 through 4. This is where Jesus is, it's called the Transfiguration, and it says, as the men watched, he had a couple of disciples there, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter explained, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, it's interesting. If you look at that passage, Scripture doesn't say that Moses and Elijah showed up and began to introduce themselves to to the disciples. It doesn't say that Moses and Elijah showed up and that Peter recognized them from the photographs at the Old Jerusalem Museum. It doesn't say that Moses and Elijah showed up and they had a name badge on that said, hello, my name is on the outside of their tunic. Okay. What it says is that Peter knew them as Moses and Elijah in their glorified state. And he was tempted to worship them. And friends, what about that? What if in heaven, in our eternal home, everyone you meet will already be a friend? You'll already know who they are. You'll already love them. Now, what an amazing picture of untainted friendship. Uh, the next aspect is untainted memory. We talked last week about how we'll have glorified bodies. And, and this is an aspect of having a glorified mind. That we would have untainted memory. In other words, perfect recall. No need for f- taking photographs. Photographs. Because of the clarity of our memory. And right now, a shoddy memory in a fallen world allows us to forget a great deal of our frustrations, of our injuries, uh, of our own shortcomings. And so some of you, as you wrote down the word perfected memory, you think that doesn't sound too good. Because you know your life, and you know the painful seasons that you've gone through, and and you know some of the trials, some of the self-inflicted hurts, that some of the other inflicted hurts that you've endured, and you think, you know what, perfect clarity sounds a little hellish to me. But I would say to you that in heaven your memory will be crystal clear, but you won't have to struggle. With sinful memories, you won't have to struggle with harsh or difficult seasons of your eternity that you have suffered through because God himself will have made you whole and holy and you will be perfected. Untainted memory. Another aspect of this, it means that you'll learn and you'll grow. You'll develop new skills and you'll do all of this rapidly and fluidly because you'll never forget what you've learned. It will be easily recalled in your glorified mental process. Okay, untainted memory. Now, I put a couple questions on. And again, we've, we've tried to incorporate questions that we've been receiving from our six o'clock service. We do Q&A afterwards. I wanted to include some of those. Question comes up about technology. Will there be technology in our eternal home? And and if so, what will it be like? And And again, I want to kind of give it an umbrella of grace. Pastor Mike, I have no idea. God can do whatever he wants when it comes to technology, but I've been reading a lot of scholars' work on this concept, and many believe that the answer to that question is yes, that there will be technological progress because of your creativity, because of your drive, because of your productivity that you have because you were made and fashioned in the image of God. And because all of those things are an element of God's image in you, you will have some kind of development and some creativity, some artistic expression, some kind of development will be a part of our eternity with God. But it is hard for us to imagine technology in heaven, isn't it? And the reason why is because every technological advance on planet Earth in a fallen system... Means that not only do we have great advance in terms of standard of living and people being cared for better, etc., but every technological advance also means pollution, destruction, temptation. There's always a downside. Technology is always a double edged sword. So in heaven, you have to recognize that in heaven, it won't be a double edged sword. Can you imagine in a perfect world, seeing how this resurrected and redeemed humanity pursues creativity and imaginative engineering. Can you imagine utilizing industry and construction with an incredible love and respect for the restored and redeemed universe that God's placed us in? How much honor and love would go into every endeavor can you imagine every single work being done by humans specifically for the purpose of reflecting the creative God whom we seek to glorify? And that will be phenomenal. So again, I, Pastor Mike doesn't know the whole plan of technology, but the potential for this glorified technological pursuit certainly exists. It also brings a question, what will be our mode of travel in heaven Right? We're in this beautiful universe, God truly creating and perfecting a playground for us to explore and enjoy. So how will we get around in heaven? Right? Um here's my vote. I want to fly. All right. That's just me. Uh, I grew up having dreams, like not daydreams, but literal dreams about flying. And I asked this question in the first service. I'd love to see, raise your hand if you've ever had a dream about flying. Anybody ever have a dream about, yeah, so that's a lot of us. I, I just wonder what that's all about, right? Why would God allow us to have these dreams? We wake up, you're like, oh man, I want to fall back asleep. That was awesome, right? And I'm not talking about the dreams where you fall. That's a bad dream, okay? I don't know. I don't know if we'll mount up with wings like eagles in heaven. I don't I don't know. The Bible doesn't really talk about specific mode of transportation that we'll enjoy, but it gives us a couple of clues. Jesus tells us we'll be like the angels. So we see how angels travel, right? We see that they have this ability to move great distances quickly. They can, you know, sort of appear, right? And they can disappear. Uh, Jesus himself, when he's resurrected, he seems to employ that same mode of travel. I put this verse on your outline. This is from Luke 24. It's after the resurrection. The disciples were together. It says, Just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. So there's a lot there for us, right? This is Jesus in his resurrected state, again, giving us a glimpse of what our resurrected states will be like. And he says, I'm not a ghost, right? I, you can touch me, you can feel me. Ghosts don't have bodies, I got a body, right? He's putting them to, uh, he's putting their fears at ease. But the interesting thing is that he appears, you know, it's a locked room, and it, somehow he's, like, walked through the wall, or somehow he's just appeared in their midst, so I don't know, does that mean we teleport, right, in heaven, like, you know, boop, boop, beam me up, you know, I, I don't know, uh, I also don't know if he's got the ability to literally walk through walls, right, he can be solid, but then pass through. Some of you know Einstein. I'm an Einstein fan. I I do, you know, I read Einstein quotes a lot. Einstein would start his classes with a tennis ball. And often he'd throw the tennis ball against the wall. And the student said, why are you doing that? And he would take a moment to explain that what we know as matter is mostly space. Right? You know this—that uh, atoms are mostly space, and atoms, you know, clump together. They're molecules. They're still mostly space. And and he would articulate to his students that there is a chance, however unlikely, that I'm going to throw this tennis ball against the wall, and the space in the atoms and molecules of this tennis ball will perfectly align with the solids in the wall, and the ball will pass right through. Now it never happened because Einstein's a nut. Okay. <laughs> But maybe, again, this is under the, the speculative realm, maybe in heaven that's the deal, is that we'll, we'll have this ability to move through and understand how molecules and space and atoms work. Again, I don't know. Uh, all I know is this, that we live in holy hope when it comes to how we'll get around in heaven. And again, my vote, still for the flying. Uh, next fill-in is uh, mansions. Well, we have mansions in heaven. We all live on the cul-de-sac, right? How's it going to work for us in heaven? And Jesus does speak to this regard in John 14. He says in the King James or New King James, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. There it is. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am... There you may be also. And so we recognize that a couple of things from this passage. One, he says, There are many mansions in my father's house. So the idea is there are many mansions. The literal translation of that word mansions is the word dwellings or dwelling places. Some of your translations might be, might say rooms. That, I think that's an incomplete translation. So dwelling places, right? And and so Jesus says mansions. That's how it's translated in the King James, New King James. And I don't know how that happens. He says, in my Father's house. So inside God's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places, right? And I think to myself, we can't conceive of a house that would have many houses in it, many mansions in it. But isn't it just like God to create a house that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside? C.S. Lewis writes in The Last Battle that even in our world, meaning here on earth, once a tiny stable contains something bigger than the universe. He's referring to the birth of Jesus Christ. So you recognize that God doesn't mind tripping us out every once in a while. Revelation 21, three and four. Some of my favorite verses in all of scripture. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. If you're filling in the blanks, you have to recognize the power of death gone. Amen. Death gone. No more the sting of death. Friends, as a pastor, I've been to way too many funerals. I've seen the pain, the abnormality, the horror of death as it rips apart the things that God never meant to be ripped apart the idea of spirit and body. God made them as one. Right? In Genesis, we see when God creates man, he breathes into Adam. And the scripture says, Adam became a soul. It doesn't say Adam received a soul. He became a soul. God put body and spirit together. He intends them to exist eternally together. Death is the abnormality that rips them apart. And we see, and, and many of you know, because you've walked a road of pain. And you've seen the horror that death is personally. But last week we talked about how death itself is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more death. And it boggles our finite understanding to imagine no death. Because we can't conceive of existing without that sort of looming over us. Right now in a fallen world, death saturates our thinking. It impacts so much of what we do and why we do what we do. We live in a constant denial of death and to have that completely removed. And I would simply tell you this, that last summer I had the honor of walking a road with a dear family, an Overlake family, the Downs, an incredible family. And Jan Downs uh, wrestled with cancer for years and last summer she went home to be with the Lord. And as I walked that road, we just had the honor of meeting with her uh, before her passing. And, and and, And it was amazing for us to see how her view of eternity impacted the way in which she walked her faith in this life. It impacted and encouraged so many in her world. And I want to show you just a short video of how she chose to process where it was that she was going. So please enjoy this video.
1: I don't have any regrets. And that's, that's my goal. Live without regret. It, there's still time. Say your apologies. Say your love. Say what you need to say. Because I want to take as many people with me as I can. (laughs) I'll see you when I get
0: there.
1: I was teaching probably my most favorite grade ever, half-day kindergarten. Thought that it was just the best job ever. It's like being a grandma. Love them to death and then say bye-bye. So in the fall of '03, I, uh, I was diagnosed on a Sunday night with definite ovarian cancer, and it was not good. So we went straight for them. From me just walking away from my class, to walking into the seven-year journey. If I thought that this life is all that we get, or as good as it gets, my circumstances would be pretty depressing. But the fact is, this is such a short time in light of eternity. Praise God, I know that this short time of distress will last such a short time. That the joys to come will last forever. So if I appear to be living in a bubble of joy, without pain, narcotics work great by the way, I am, um, I sleep like a baby, I go to bed with a smile on my face, I get up grateful for every day, I could go at any minute and I'm okay with that because I know where I'm going. Having your eternity settled, doesn't make for anything to be too afraid of. So um, that's where I'm at. That's the journey of Jan Downs. Hey,
0: can we just honor Jan and the life that she lived, the way that she ran the race? You see, as, as a believer, what she was exhibiting is the reality that because of Jesus Christ, because of her eternal home and the vision that she had of her eternal home that Jesus is preparing for her, the Bible talks about how death has lost its sting. Okay, death has lost its sting, sting for those of us who are walking with Jesus now. And Jan was a beautiful picture of that. What the scripture talks about is death's not going to lose its sting. It's going to be gone forever. It's going to be removed. And that reality, the implications of that are so profound for us. And then the scripture says, not only will death be removed, no more death, but there'll also be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. And and so that's the next, that sorrow will be gone as well. That the Lord himself, the scripture says, will wipe every tear from our eyes. And again, I I just, I would love to encourage you to imagine that. Imagine God himself covering you, removing all sorrow, all the stain of your pain. If you've ever been depressed, if you've ever walked that dark road, if you've ever had a loved one who's walked the road of depression, and I have. I've had family members. I've had dear friends. I myself have struggled with depression from time to time. I just want to tell you to have God himself say that will be removed forever. If you've ever had a loved one struggle with mental illness and the darkness of that road, and just to think that God would just take that and wipe it away, remove that pain, take away all that sorrow. Friends, Jesus himself is so, so good. And this truth that we have, this reality of heaven to cling to, that God will be present with us. That we will live in a resurrected life, in a resurrected planet with no hint of sin or curse. Living in close proximity to our comfort, our Savior, our Father. That we'll be able to explore the wonders of a recreated nature. Able to celebrate the best of untainted culture and art and literature and creativity. Able to enjoy relationships without fear or distrust or hurt of any kind able to celebrate beauty of each individual and never lust or covet or compare, but simply praise God for his beauty manifest in our friends, able to look at our own beauty and glory and not even for a second become vain or proud or arrogant, but every good thing in this state of blessedness just causes us to praise our wonderful and glorious God and Father even more. Friends, this is the fulfillment of our heart's deep longing. This is what we long for most. We might not even understand what we want, what our desires are in this fallen world. We might not even know what we long for, but friends, God does know. Because God himself has planted his desire, that longing in our hearts. The scripture says in Ecclesiastes that God himself has planted eternity in our hearts. That we are designed to long for that reality, to yearn for heaven and some of us have bought into the convoluted thinking that heaven will uh will all be this disembodied consciousness floating around in some cosmic steam room not recognizing anyone or anything but maybe floating over and joining a choir occasionally right and friends i want you to understand that that if that's your view you're not going to desire heaven and it's not going to impact your here and now. It's not going to motivate you or invigorate you or, or fuel you to get through the difficult seasons of today. Randy Alcorn says in his book called Heaven, he says, we do not desire to eat gravel. Why? Because God did not design us to eat gravel. Trying to develop an appetite for a disembodied existence in a non-physical heaven is like trying to develop an appetite for gravel. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how hard we try, it's not going to work, nor should it. What God made us to desire, and therefore what we do desire if we admit it, is exactly what he promises to those who follow Jesus Christ. A resurrected life and a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. Our desires correspond precisely. To God's plans. See, what we will receive in heaven and eternity is the very fulfillment of our deepest longing and desire. God himself will fulfill our deep desire for eternity as we live in true communion with him and with one another. All corruption, all sin, neglect, destruction, they will be replaced eternally with peace, love, compassion, correctness, and joy. We will have perfected desires and wills in which everything we desire and everything we pursue and everything that brings us pleasure will also bring glory and honor and praise and pleasure to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you want to write down in the margin the words total freedom of will, total freedom of will. What that means is that every single thing you want in eternity is fair game. It's all good to go. You will want it, whatever you want. It, it's fine. It's wonderful to pursue because you will have perfected free will. Everything that you can desire will bring glory to God. And some of you will push back. You're a philosophy major here. You're like, wait a sec. That doesn't make sense. Uh, How can it be free will if I can't desire evil things? I was a philosophy major, so I know the insanity of which you speak. (laughs) How can you call it free will if you can't desire evil things? Answer. The fact that we desire evil things is simply a testimony to how fallen and depraved everything is in this world. How the curse of sin has so infiltrated us that the desires of our hearts we don't even know. That we pursue things that are detrimental to ourselves, that are hurtful to other people, that bring dishonor to God, who loves us like we can't even comprehend. I mean, it's simply a testimony to how completely fallen we are, that we would desire things That are, that are horrific and evil. Now, Paul talks about this. He, he, he says he walks that road. He's a living testimony to the fact that his desires are broken. I think we can all attest this has been our story as well. Romans 7, 18. Paul says, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And this is Paul's acknowledgement that our desires in this life are broken. Friends, they're simultaneously self-serving and self-disappointing. And God has something better in store for us. He wants to perfect our very desires. And so in heaven, everything that I desire will be a way to bring God glory, to bring joy to others, and to bring pleasure to myself. And, and bringing glory to God will be my perfect joy bringing glory to God by serving Him, bringing glory to God by celebrating Him, by worshiping Him, by praising Him, by enjoying Him, by enjoying all of the redeemed and restored new heavens and new earth, and by loving those that are around me. And last week we talked about how most people believe in heaven. Again, between 80 and 95% of Americans surveyed believe in an afterlife. And then if you start to, to press on details of that, well, there's obviously a lot of confusion about what the afterlife will be like, about what it takes to get there. Some folks think you got to follow an eightfold path. Some folks think you got to uphold the five pillars. Other folks think you got to seek, you know, this cosmic consciousness that you're going to be uh, sort of, uh, you know, enfolded into in nirvana. Moral Christians, legalistic Christians think that it's because you do the right things, that if you do enough right things, that that's going to be your ticket in. But friends, the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus Christ is the only way that Jesus on the cross, that he is the one who suffered and died so that the stain of our sin could be completely removed so that we could be with him, not only in this life, but for eternity. And Jesus is the one who loves us enough to come for us. Jesus is the, the one who has provided the entry fee that is accepted at heaven's door. This idea of, of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. They're not just the first example of the resurrection to come, although they are that. But his resurrection is also the reality that we are invited to follow him. He provides the pathway for us to live eternally with our Father, our Savior, and our God. God himself has restored humanity to a position of righteousness through grace that enables us to live as God has originally intended for us to live. And so in Isaiah, we read these words, that all your people will be righteous. All your people will be righteous. Which begs the question, who goes to heaven? who goes to heaven? The answer, all dogs go to heaven, right? No, I'm just kidding. Animation joke, right? Scripture says, Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven: nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. only those whose names are written in the lamb's book of life my son Caleb is 8 years old he's a he's a burgeoning theologian and we have all sorts of, of theological conversations and and he was asking me i think he had, he had heard the phrase book of life uh, at, at some lesson at, at at church and so he was asking me about it so i read him this passage and we were having a conversation and and i read this verse and he said um he had asked a natural follow up question and i hope it's a question that that is impressed on your heart as well. He says, only those whose names are in the book of life. Well, Dad, how do you get your name written in the book of life? And so I just talked to him about trusting Jesus. I just talked to him about trusting that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh. Just trusting that, that Jesus came and that his death on the cross was the full payment for our sins, trusting that that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was simply proof that he was God in the flesh, but also that he literally busts the doors open so that we could follow him and be with him in eternity in this eternal home that he's preparing for us right now. And of course, my son, Caleb, not of course, but my son, Caleb, he's already walked that road. He's already invited Jesus into his life. This was just further confirmation of the road that God has him on. But I share this so that you understand that your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Romans chapter 10 verse nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can underline that last phrase. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, right? You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so in light of that, I simply invite you to experience his salvation today. I invite all of you to experience his salvation today. Look, you go to the bookstore and you go to the self-help section and you see uh, there there are so many books on self-help. And every single book has the singular premise that if you do enough stuff that's in this book, somehow you'll be worthy of love. And every religion, and you go to the religion section of the bookstore and it's huge. All sorts of things and all sorts of books written on religion, about religion, all all sorts of religious pathways out there. And every single religion has exactly the same premise that if you do enough good stuff, if you do enough stuff that's in this book, then you'll be acceptable to God. But only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ is, is the one who says it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. It's about what God has done pursuing you. What God has done loving you. What God has done to take care of the sin problem that infects every single one of us. And he's paid the penalty in his son, Jesus Christ. And he's wiped your sins away. And he's allowed you to have a relationship of love with him that starts today and lasts for eternity. And so I want to invite you. You know, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter four, today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, when you hear his voice, my prayers are you hearing his voice today? That you hear his voice even now. That his invitation to you, it's real. It's on the table. He's inviting you to be with him now and for eternity. Listen, friends, I, I, I don't know if this is sinking totally in. So I just want to summarize heaven, right? You're going to be in a body that you love, surrounded by people that you love in a renewed creation that you love serving and worshiping God that you love. It's going to taste good. It's going to look good. It's going to feel good. It's going to be good. And it kicks the snot out of hell. But friends, the biggest win of all is that you're going to be with God. You're going to be feasting with Jesus. You're going to have this unbroken connection with God's Spirit. Heaven is going to be really, really, really good. And so I just want to close with a story. It's an old story, and some of you might know this story. But it's this beautiful little old lady who attended a country church for decades. And she knew she was coming up on the end of her life here on earth, and so she arranged a meeting with the pastor, and she wanted to talk to the pastor about the arrangements for a funeral, and so she had some ideas of hymns that she wanted to have sung, and she had a favorite passage of scripture that she asked the pastor if he would teach on, and and then uh, they finished some of the details about the actual service, and she had an unusual request. She asked the pastor if she could be buried with a fork in her hand, And the pastor was a little curious about that. So he asked, why a fork? And she went on to explain that um, one of the things that had brought her great joy throughout the years at her little country church were the potluck dinners. And she loved getting together with all of her friends. She loved enjoying, you know, the delicacies from all different homes in the church body. She loved the fellowship that provided. But one of her favorite experiences of all was after the dinner was over and someone would come and clear away the dishes and the person would lean over to her and say, you'd better keep your fork. And she knew that was code for the dessert is on the way. (laughs) She said, pastor, I knew that meant the best was yet to come. And so I want to be buried with a fork in my hand to tell all my friends that I love them dearly and I enjoyed this life with them so much. But I want to remind them that the best is yet to come and they better keep their fork. Right, so what I want to do right now is I want to pray with you and I want to extend to all of you the same invitation that Jesus is. He wants you to say yes to him. He wants you to place your faith in him. To, to confess with your mouth. In other words, let there be an outward expression of your faith that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is in fact God, that he has busted open hell and death and that he's resurrected and in inviting you to follow him, to live a life of love with him now and to be with him for eternity. So let's bow our heads. And Jesus, we want to just begin by saying thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you that you have pursued us. That, that your plan was. That individually you would love us. That you would call us. That you would, you would come after us. To rescue us. We thank you that you loved us so much. That you died on a cross in our place. You died a criminal's death. You didn't deserve that. We did Jesus, we thank you for going through hell so none of us would have to. We thank you so much that you're preparing a place for us even now. And Jesus, we want to say yes to you. So right now, Lord, I, I, just, want to, I just want to ask that all the believers in this room, all of those who have already said yes to you, that today would be, uh, this moment would be a moment where they would say yes again. That they would confess right now with their lips, Jesus is Lord. They would just say, Jesus is Lord. That they would believe in their hearts that you are raised from the dead. That they would know that they are walking with you now. And they're following you into eternity. And God, I want to pray for every single person here who has never said yes to you. My prayer is that they would be overwhelmed by your love that your grace would extend to them, that they would literally feel your arms wrap around them, knowing that you love them, knowing that you want them with you, knowing that your plan is that they would enjoy not only walking with you today, but they would enjoy eternity with you forever. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would move in their life in such a way that they would say yes. That today when they hear your voice, they wouldn't harden their hearts, but they would say yes to you. Jesus, we love you and we want to just commit all of this to you. We want to commit our lives to you. We want to ask that this incredible vision of eternity would fuel us and inspire us to live exceptional lives in the here and now. We pray this in your name. Amen.